0: Hello and welcome to the Meaningfulistic Podcast. I am your host, Gabriel Gonzalez, and I'm asking questions about what matters to who and why in the deepest, most personal sense. This is an exploration to find deep meaning at the intersection of the secular and the sacred, the artistic and the scientific. Topics will revolve around meaning at the center of psychology, religion, and philosophy. The meaningfulistic is the both and of the yin and yang of what it means to be. In this episode, I have the privilege of speaking with a cognitive behavioral psychotherapist who has developed a way of reintegrating the concept of the soul into psychotherapy. Historically, what we call and understand today as psychotherapy was originally a spiritual endeavor known as soul care. The Freudian divorce of the supernatural elements of the human person has created a loss of information about how we live and function in union with our psyche. Fortunately, this is being re-established with the merging of modern psychotherapeutic techniques with ancient Christian concepts. Greg Nolan of Birmingham, UK, is an accredited psychotherapist who has been working in the mental health services for nearly two decades. His practice is informed by a Christian perspective of the psyche, or soul, and our relationship with the world around us. His core premise is that our intellect and free will govern our passions, as enumerated by St. Thomas Aquinas. If you're not familiar with the Thomistic understanding of the spirit, soul, and body composite of the person, you're not alone, neither was I. Greg does a great job of explaining this in a way that anyone, anyone with an open mind, can understand. This is Catholic CBT with Greg Nolan. Hello, I am speaking with Greg Nolan, psychotherapist. Welcome to the Meaningfulistic podcast, Greg.
1: Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me.
0: And I should say you're from Birmingham, but not Alabama.
1: No. (laughs) Birmingham, UK. Across All the right. Across okay. The
0: yeah. So tell me a little bit about your uh, background info, just some personal highlights and how you
1: became a psychotherapist. Okay. Okay. So um, I've been a, a therapist now for about 10 years. I, I, I started getting into working in mental health when I was 26. So I'm now 45. So nearly 20 years ago. Um. I trained as a psychiatric nurse back in the day, sort of as a as a stepping stone to getting into therapy, because I stumbled across a book in in my early twenties that really sort of captivated me and, and um enamored me with psychology as, as a as a as a discipline and a field. And felt that I wanted to become a therapist at that point, I guess, in my early twenties prior to that, to be honest, I always thought of religious vocation. I I sort of half assumed I'd end up as a Cistercian monk because since I was 18, I was always going to, to a particular monastery in the UK and I was very good friends with a novice master. And we were sort of talking about me potentially becoming a monk. Um, I'm now married with two kids, so that didn't happen, but, (laughs) (laughs) um, but yeah, I stumbled across this book that sort of introduced me to psychology, and I think uh, I've always had a sort of philosophical leaning, i guess anyway so um yeah, so i, I after having done very many things I, I was at the point that i I read that book it was it was the primal screen by Arthur Yanov, which enamored me at the time and I think since it's it's quite a problematic book, but nevertheless it introduced me to psychology, you see so okay I, I was living abroad at that time i was I was teaching English in Slovakia. Um, And I was just sort of moving around, doing, you know, bits and bobs here and there. I was there for a couple of years. Um, But then I came back when I was 26, trained as a psychiatric nurse, worked on inpatient acute wards, so with schizophrenics, bipolar, so the more severe end of mental illness for about eight years in total, including the training, because I worked while I was training and then trained and qualified as a psychotherapist. I think it was 2014 I qualified, and I've been working as a therapist since since then. Okay, and I saw you're a member of, uh, what was that? Well, the accreditation. Yes, sir. Yeah, it's it's the BABCP, so the British Association of um, Behavioral and Cognitive Psychotherapists. Okay. So I, I initially trained in CBT. I've, I've trained in um, interpersonal psychotherapy since then. I've done some training in um psychotherapy, contemporary psychoanalysis but um I just gave it up because I, I've I don't believe in it essentially so uh, I've moved away from that really.
0: okay so what was it that drew you away from the more clinical or, or what you were describing
1: away from analysis
0: yeah there you
1: go. yeah I don't believe in it. so the the Freudian conception of the subconscious I don't believe in it um theoretically firstly, Um, I'm not, it's a, it's a complicated subject really, but I, I don't believe in, um, from a Thomistic standpoint, I know that we're going to go on to talk about the psychology of Thomas Aquinas, but from a Thomistic standpoint, there's simply no need to, um, call upon the notion of the Freudian conception of the subconscious at all. There's just no need for it really. And, you know, lots of people... Have, rec- uh, have taken that position. So Beck, for example, the, the guy who first proposed cognitive psychology, was trained as an analyst and said, you don't really need to make an appeal to the subconscious. I think it's really messy. I think it's um, theoretically problematic. I think it's methodologically problematic. Um, and ultimately, it, it, I, I struggled with it for years, to be honest. So I read loads of psychoanalysis for many years, um, a lot of the early stuff that I was reading was trying to reconcile Thomistic psychology and Thomistic anthropology with psychoanalysis. And I, I wrestled with that for years until I, I did the training. And, and it was like, this just isn't hanging together, really. It just, it just doesn't make sense. And and um, And also clinically. So I've had people who've come to me for therapy after having had 15 to 20 years worth of psychoanalysis. And for me that's not a therapeutic intervention. It's a way of life. And I think it engenders a way of life more than, more than a, a therapeutic intervention. It's a bit technical. Sorry, but that's, that's, yeah, I, I didn't believe in it. Ultimately it was what, what drew me away from analysis.
0: Yeah. No, that makes sense. A lot of some of the critiques that I've heard more recently of, of psychotherapy or psychology in general is because they always associate that outdoor outdated sense of Freudian analysis and, mm. And I, I think just the general public doesn't know how far we've actually come from those rudimentary type, uh, very, like you said, like depersonalized. If I, you know, does that make sense?
1: Well, it's it, it's a it's a real mixed bag to be honest. So they said a lot of things that are very useful. Like Freud said a lot of things that are very useful. Jung said a lot of things. Jung said things that I use in therapy to this day. You know, so they weren't stupid men. They were very clever young was probably bordering genius i wouldn't that that's would be my position with him but um Freud was an outspoken um atheist materialist that's that's the heart of the problem essentially, but fair play to him he was honest about that he said there is no such thing as god you know here a, a work called the future of an illusion you know he was the the first, well, not the first, but you know, he he predates Richard Dawkins, for example, in suggesting that God is a delusion or a projection of the mind. You know, um, but Jung said basically a very similar thing. Although Jung talked very favourably about Christ, he, he said you know very nice things about Christ. But yeah, it certainly moved on. Like a, a lot of the schools of psychotherapy that exist today, such as cognitive psychology, Gestalt, um transactional analysis they're all people who were trained in psychoanalysis who said now but they basically distanced themselves from it for various reasons um yeah and and
0: and and have moved on yeah so yeah. you met, you mentioned that you already had a tomistic understanding where did that come from it sounded like it preceded your psychological training
1: it did really yeah and I um it, that grew out of a friendship, to be honest. So I, I, I've got a very good friend who studied philosophy at university, and I've got a, a, a quite a big circle of Catholic friends. Are you Catholic yourself? Or yes, sir.
0: Okay.
1: <laughs> so I've got quite a big group of Catholic friends, and this one friend I, I became friends with in, in my um, mid to late 20s. And we began at that time having philosophical discussions, right? And we do to this day, you know. So it's it's twenty years later, and we're we're still doing it. But some of the ideas that um, were planted in seed form sort of were from that friendship. And I began reading a lot, um, really prompted from that. But yeah, yeah, I'm prompted by that. I've always had a philosophical leaning anyway. I think temperamentally, I sort of lean in that direction. But I think that friendship really um, kindled and, and and inflamed that part of who I am. Yeah. Uh, so I guess it's, it's not part of the
0: podcast to be Catholic, but I think a lot of um, being Catholic from the inside, uh, looking out, others might not be able to understand from the outside looking in that this type of uh, discussions that you mentioned, like having deep philosophical discussions is are, are something that we don't shy away from. Um, there, you know, so, you know, some people can, um, have their own, uh, obvious reasons with, uh, the scandals and, or, or even just being against church hierarchy or even being against what I've noticed later lately, that people are just against a moral absolute. Those are, those are just the, you know, bullet points for people to have a, uh I guess, a willful bias against Catholics, but as you can see, I I am, I guess we are equally different <laughs> or recognize ourselves as that sort of um, difference of someone who could say, okay, we have spiritual leanings, faith leanings, and we also have um, questions uh, that we struggle with that are logical. And part of the beauty of the Catholic Church is we really enjoy um, tersing out those little threads and poking at the and theology, whereas other people probably will be less inclined to do so. Yeah,
1: yeah, or, or even if they're inclined, they you know we're sort of privileged as Catholics insofar as we've got such um, a tradition of such sound um, and an in depth. Um, philosophical inquiry, you know, so Thomas Aquinas, for example, but just well, that's one of uh, of countless people, Bonaventure, other people like that. So, um, it yeah, we we you know, crikey, like I, you know, we we're standing on the shoulders of giants, man, like big time. And even Aquinas was standing on the shoulders of Aristotle, you know. Right. So there's a real um depth and beauty and and logical solidness to, um what you might call a Christian philosophy, I I suppose. Yeah, yeah. You know, John Paul II said the Catholic Church actually has no philosophy, and he's he's right in the sense that there are philosophers within the church. But um, we don't have a philosophy, we have a theology. We believe in God and and His Revelation, you know. But yeah, there's such a rich tradition of philosophy within our church. So thanks be to God. Yeah, Yeah. amen.
0: Well, I guess one of the questions, I guess, before we go into Catholic, CBT specifically, is – you And it also tied into how you felt that you saw that there's some psychoanalysis that wasn't really meshing with your already understanding and your existing philosophy of humanity was the spiritual side. So why are spiritual matters important for a, you know, psychotherapist?
1: Because we have a
0: spirit. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And, and it'd be hard to.
1: You know. Oh sorry, I don't want to be flippant. Yeah,
0: go that, too that, far into the in
1: That's it in a nutshell. But um so psychotherapy, the word so psyche means soul, therapy means healing. So psychotherapy is the healing of the soul. Psychology means the study of the soul, you know. I've I've got friends who are um professors in psychology and in academic institutions who who simply do not believe the soul exists. So to be a professor of psychology when you don't believe the soul exists, like something's wrong with the picture. You know something something's going very wrong. If if you're seeking to to practice counselling or psychotherapy or or any kind of um, healing of the soul, you need to know what the soul is. It seem it seems. Um, it's almost comically ob- comically obvious if you see what I mean. It, you know, it's uh, so yeah. But you know, modern psychology has a good stab, and it. It, it it you know it, there are various schools that that are closer to a Catholic understanding of the soul. But even the ones that are closer to a Catholic understanding of the soul are, are very lacking, you know, in in um, what they can do ultimately, because in order to be psychologically healthy, we need to be attuned to reality and the reality is that God made us that I have an immaterial soul that um, I'm made for union with God that I'm I'm made to have a deep and abiding prayer life. Um, heaven and hell exist the angels exist, the demons exist. this is all reality so you know the function of the intellect is to be in accordance with reality. So um, psychotherapy, But the intellect is just one faculty of the psyche, right? So, if you're trying to achieve psychological order, um, introducing the truth to the intellect is part of the process. You know, it's um, yeah. I I think
0: yeah. Well, it makes sense to me. I was trying to trying to look at it from another angle. Would they? Would would someone who doesn't believe in a soul probably be more comfortable with self, like a capital S self, or consciousness? Or, or I can't, I can't imagine, I know that there's limitations and if anything, they'll say like a soul is, is, is the nasty word that you don't want to admit or arrive to, but I I guess that they would assume some sort of lesser quality would just be your self capital S or your consciousness. Mm -hmm. Do you see, how would you describe that limitation of the difference between say like a self
1: or a consciousness and the soul? It depends what it's, what's meant by the self, I suppose. Uh, it depends what they're suggesting, I, I guess. you know I, I, They'd need to thrash it out a bit. Like therapy can be done. I've worked with atheists for years, right? So I worked within the NHS for 10 years as a therapist. Well, eight, I think, and then I left them in private. But So I've worked with... Everybody. I've worked with some religious, but the religious people are the minority of people I've worked with. I've worked with predominantly people who have no religious background at all. I've worked with Muslims, um, Sikhs, Hindus, Christians, Catholics, atheists. So... You, you can certainly do psychological work in, insofar as everybody recognizes thought and everybody recognizes emotion and everybody recognizes behavior and everybody recognizes imagination. So everybody recognizes faculties of the soul. And um, you can do a lot of good work just within that framework, really. Um, it's just that it's not the full picture you know, you can't achieve uh, absolute psychological wholeness or well-being without God in 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 truth. You know, you can't get there, which is sad. Which is why I want to present a, a psychological framework that, that that incorporates the reality of God and the soul. You know, yeah. I
0: guess that brings us to uh, Thomas Aquinas,
1: yeah, and his, <laughs> and his
0: principles. Quite so. I have a. I suppose rudimentary, just enough to get in trouble. Type understanding of the Thomistic elements, but how would you, how did you find that as your key to your
1: practice? How did I come across it? Do you mean, or or, or why sure. why why is it? So I, I came across. It, it's it's a tradition in the church, I guess. Like many popes for the past probably at least a hundred, or hundred and fifty years, have said, if you're going to study philosophy, Thomas Aquinas is the exemplar of how to do it, really. So it, it's a it's a very strong tradition within our church. And one one of the things that he did many things, right? So he wrote the Sum and he wrote a lot more than that. But one of the things that he did was he wrote about humanity, so what constitutes the human person. And for me, when I was thinking about psychotherapy, it was always sort of instinctive for me, that if you didn't know what a human being was, if you couldn't actually define what a, a man is, then if that's not your starting point, then you, you sort of it anyway, like you, you, you're going to make mistakes, you know? So anthropology, I mean, the, the classical ancient um, use of the term, I don't mean the modern, I don't mean modern academic anthropology, which is a different thing altogether, but classical and, and scholastic anthropology which is the definition of what is a human being? What are the constituent parts of a human being? What, what, how does man function? What are, what are the parts of that? Um, that always seemed to me instinctively to be a necessary starting point, I guess. And nobody did that better than Thomas Aquinas. You know, It became very apparent, very fast, that atomistic anthropology needed to be the foundational framework for any same psychological model. And that's proven to be the case i reckon
0: <laughs> right and you weren't the only one to to have that sort of connection between aquinas and psychology right?
1: well me personally right oh people have written about it before this is very rare it's very rare yeah oh. but I, well, I, clinicians anyway so conrad bars wrote about it in the 60s and 70s at him and anna taru okay they were Dutch, um psychoanalysts And they attempted the same thing. So they they were like, well, they were devout Catholics, and they wanted to marry um, to mystic anthropology with psychoanalysis because they were analysts, you know. And they did they you know they I've got books by Conrad Barth on my shelf next to me. He's you know he was a good man, you know. His writings were sound for the most part, Um, but for my money, his desire to couch it within a psychoanalytic framework was his problem. I think he did a lot of good work. Like he's he's a a, a great mind, really, and an absolute thoroughgoing academic, and very really clever chap, and a very good man. Um, but I think that his attachment to psychoanalysis is probably what what um, shut him in the foot a little bit. But you know, it, it's each to their own. I'm not I'm not going to presenting CBT from a, a Catholic perspective, I'm not going to try and, you know, beat up on anyone who tries to do it Present an analysis from a Catholic. So I don't, I don't care. If that's that your cup of tea, do it. I don't mind. It's, it's fine. I'm not, I'm not saying that everybody has to do it the way that I've done it, but that's, that's just where my mind would go
0: with it. So, yeah. So cognitive behavioral therapy, what most people don't know, CBT is becoming very more and more recognized and popular. It's easier to apply how are you using it as a catholic how, what what is
1: catholic cbt so there's there's two parts so one is the again having a, as a basis the understanding of the soul right and the understanding of the various faculties of the soul so the intellect that that gets complicated but the the, the intellect being an immaterial principle you know it's it's that's part of our spirit our intellect or at least the, the the active intellect or the agent intellect that's a spiritual faculty. So thought is an immaterial process. There's this very commonly held idea that we think with our brain. That's not true. Your brain can't think. You can't hold an idea in your brain any more than you can hold an idea in your hand, right? That isn't to say that when you're thinking, your brain isn't involved. It is. So your brain is active while you're thinking because we're a body-soul composite, right? Um, but your intellect is an immaterial faculty. Your will is an immaterial faculty. Now, what CBT does really well, I like CBT a lot, right? It, it's, it's, when I say that there are certain psychological models that are closer to a Catholic anthropology, cognitive psychology is one of them. It's 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 l- largely sound, right? The, the the fundamental ideas within cognitive psychology are sound ideas. But if you haven't got the proper foundation of what the intellect is, what the will is, no, no as, as far, in my reading, I haven't read anywhere in any psychological model, i talking about the will, free will, which is an absolutely real faculty of the human psyche. We have free will. Animals do not have free will. I do, you do, every human being does. And if when when you don't have that as a foundation to build upon, you get into really um, problematic places, right? So the, the free will is jettisoned from most psychological models. They talk about the relationship between thoughts, emotions, and behaviour. For example, that's what you know CBT in a nutshell. Really, you're looking at how thoughts and behaviours impact our emotional state but they don't talk about the will they don't talk about the fact that the will has direct direct impact on on what we think and on what we do but not on the passions for example um, so they haven't got a, a a robust understanding of the faculties of the psyche i'd say that that's the that's one of the two major ways in which catholic cbt would differ from secular cbt is that it has as a foundation an understanding of the faculties of the psyche and how they relate to one another and what should take prominence and what shouldn't. So for example, lots of mental disorders are constituted by an elevation of the life of the passions above the intellect, right? The passions are material, they're they're seated in our body. So um, love, hate, anger, revulsion, joy, desire, all, all of the passions of which there are 11, <laughs> they're all seated with, within our body and they're common to us and mammals. So dogs and cats have got the same passions, right? So they are that's part of our the animal part of our nature, you might say. The higher part of our nature, <clears throat> the spiritual part of our nature is constituted by the intellect and the will. That's the inner man. So when the Bible talks about strengthening of the inner man, it's referring to our spiritual soul, the intellect and the will, which is where the grace of God, which is what the grace of God acts upon. So, you know, when, when our, our blessed Lord said to Peter, James and John, when they were sleeping in the, in the garden, you know, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He was almost making a, a, a philosophical distinction. You know the the flat this this material thing is the thing that's weak about me. Um, it's a thing that's subject to change. It's the, the material that's subject to change, whereas the spiritual part of me, the intellect and the will, that's the higher order, right? So it's it's I can ramble on about this for ages. Do you want me to just continue, or did, am uh, I am yeah. I going to point at all?
0: Well, you were just about that. You were saying you, the. That it was moving above would that be considered a freudian would call superego it's higher than just logic and reason
1: right the freudians they're material so freud was an absolute materialist a thoroughgoing materialist he said there's no such thing as spirit at all it's an illusion so um what freud wanted to do was to make psychology into as much of a hard science as physics because he just saw the psyche as being the material operations of the body, ne- you know, neurology, so cognitive neuroscience and this sort of thing. Um, and I think that's so popular these days be- because materialism is the zeitgeist, it's the spirit of the age. Most, most people think that a human person is is just a highly evolved animal that's all a human person is. They have no spirit. They have no soul. Yeah. So there, there are many, any, to be honest with you, any mental disorder, common mental problem, mm-hmm. like a mood disorder or an anxiety disorder or, or, you know, OCD, for example, the tendency to act on what we feel as opposed to what we know to be true, right? That's a real common feature of any and all mental health problems, really. It's the elevation of the passion of life over the intellect, of what I know to be true, which is a, which is a spiritual um, reality. So you can, if, if we don't know what are the faculties of the soul, how they should relate to one another, what should be in what position, what should have governance over what else. So Aquinas, for example, said that the passion is there just to serve me. The passions exist to serve me. Fear exists to serve me. Hate and anger exist to serve me. Love and desire exist to serve the passion of love. What happens in mental disorders, largely speaking, is that the passions begin to govern us. You know, So a reordering of, the, of, of those faculties is a constituent part, really, of, it, of any therapy. And it makes a lot more sense from a Catholic starting point, from the understanding of the soul. So you said that
0: people would need to know or they're rebelling against what they know to be true or they're trying to seek mm-hmm. solutions for the passions of their material, of their body, of their immediate sort of base level needs and concerns and thoughts, correct? Yeah,
1: well, they feel it. So I'll give an example to, to, to finish that. Imagine somebody with OCD, so obsessive compulsive disorder. They... You know, the most classic example would be to to do with um, cleanliness or hygiene or the pass the transmission of disease or illness or the contraction of disease. So they might wash their hands. Just to, you know, an archetypal example, to, they might wash their hands a hundred times a day in order not to pass on, I don't know, HIV to their sister. Whatever, uh, you know, bad example. So they're washing their hands, and they'll often say, "I know this doesn't make sense." Oh. I know it doesn't make sense. I know that I don't need to do this, but I feel like I do. Um, somebody who's depressed will say, you know, will again, from, from a Catholic perspective, I work with the ontological goodness of all humanity. You have intrinsic worth because you're made by God. You're good in your essence, in your being. You're constitutionally a good thing thing right why because God made us and and God looked and saw it was good we're all sinners but we're all ontologically good how much worth do we have well God died for us right that's that's how I know how much worth I have but you know God bless poor people who've you know we've all had you know difficult experiences that can lead to us feeling worthless for example and we can act according, we can act out of that. We can act out of that pain, that brokenness, and that woundedness. And we're allowing the, the visceral felt experience of worthlessness or shame. One of the things that I commonly use with people who are depressed is this idea of intrinsic worth right? Everybody has intrinsic worth. And most people can get on board with that. Atheists can get on board with it, right? You say, well, does it, you know, is there any, have you ever met a baby that doesn't have worth? And of course I've got, everyone's got worth. It's, It's an instinct within us. So I don't need to make an appeal to God necessarily. But oftentimes I say, okay, I can see what you're saying. I can see that Logically speaking, I must have worth, I suppose, but I, I still feel like crap. I still feel worthless. I still feel despicable. I still feel shame-ridden and and unworthy. So that that's the beginning of the 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 chink in the armor. So the, there's the realization of the intellect of the truth. I have worth. I'm good in and of myself. But I, there's this feeling of something different, and one of one of the reasons why mental health problems are perpetuated is p- because people behave according to what the feelings suggest are true. They their, their behavior is governed by their feeling, their passion, their emotion, their sense of shame. In, in OCD, the fear that I'm going to pass the flu on to, to my family, even though I know that I'm not. I know that I'm not. So the passions, are, and this is um, a constituent part of mental health problems, right? The passions are elevated above the intellect, which is just disordered per se. That's that's definitively a psychological disorder because the passions are there to serve my intellect. They're not there to govern me. So the intellect and the will are there to govern my action. One of the things that Freud said, for example, was you are not the master of your own house, right? What happens to you subconsciously is the master of your house. You're, you, you've got, you got, we, we there's this illusion that we think that we are self-governing. So he really attacked the, no, the the notion of free will, and, and when I was doing psychoanalytic training, for example, there were people in the room saying, "I don't believe free will exists. There's no such thing as free will," which is a horrible, insidious, insidious belief or proposition.
0: So. Is that because they think that your thoughts are uh, basically just the sum of? all of the other actions that they've observed from other people and say okay i'm just doing this because this is familiar to me because this is what i see or are they absolutely rejecting that i have no that i that i am being controlled by other sort of forces
1: yeah well if you're a materialist and you say there's no such thing as free will what you're doing is being you're being at least philosophically consistent because within materialism as a framework, there is no such thing as free will. Like um, honest philosophers who are materialist philosophers say there's no, there can't be such a thing as free will. People who study it and you are cognizant of the reality that you can't get free will from matter. It doesn't make any sense. Matter doesn't choose what it does, right? So I think they're just following the philosophy that they've adopted. But, yeah, it is something along those lines. And th- this is this is the horribleness of materialism because it, it makes us enslaved to our material part of our bodies. There was a father of the church. I've lost this quote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I saw it a couple of years ago. I, I, I've been looking for it and not been able to find it. But one of the fathers of the church said, those who say that only matter exists imprison themselves in the matter which they say exists they're imprisoned their soul is imprisoned there's nowhere that's more acutely apparent and real than in psychology people who think they're just material think actually believe they're governed by their body they're not free their, 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 their belief is such that it imprisons themselves within their body and you know god you know that 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 doesn't end well <laughs> It's it because it's untrue. It's false.
0: It made a lot of sense that you said I am good, but I feel worthless. And I know there's a distinction that people don't really have a clear distinction of thoughts and feelings. But, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. But how yeah. does
0: that relate to uh, specifically the depression? Because that's what it sounds like. Uh, uh, that that mm-hmm. level of worthlessness. The level of. uh, the bleakness, hopelessness, how does CBT or Catholic
1: CBT help? so for from a Catholic standpoint, there's something in in, in CBT or in cognitive psychology called a thought feeling fusion. people and that that's not unusual, right? people it's not at all unusual for people not to be able to tease apart what they think and what they feel. And it's in our language you know what do you feel about the recent election uh, or do you feel that the recent election was just or something so we conflate feelings and thought all the time so that that's something that even within secular you know cbt they they're very good actually at teasing apart what is actually a thought what's a feeling that's really important that's really important so when you say i feel worthless what you're saying really is, I think I'm worthless, and if I feel, you probably feel a visceral felt sense of shame for various reasons. Do you know what I mean? So there's, there's a conflation of, it, of things going on. From a Catholic perspective, we're made by God, and we're made for love, and we're made to be loved. We're, we're made to be recipients of the eternal, infinite love of God. That's what we're made for. I'm made for union with God. God is love, right? But we're fallen. Humanity is fallen, so none of us, when we look at our parents, see perfect examples of God, right? So we, we all experience a lack or a deficit to greater or lesser degrees. So developmental psychology and, and, and formative years are so crucial, actually, when you're doing psychotherapy to gain an understanding of what, what went into the formation of this person's persona, what, what went into the formation of their character. And and that again. So you know, for what, what I often um, talk about in in therapy is that in terms of our early years, there's a couple of ways in which things can go wrong. Um, I, broadly speaking, one is you know something wasn't there that should have been, so love or affirmation or play or discipline or you know the good things that ought to be there, or something was there that shouldn't have been, so abuse in its various forms, addiction, etc. So an absent good or a present evil they are the ways that things can go wrong when we're being formed and we can learn our sense of self. In the normal course of things if we have loving parents who, who love us, we have this felt sense and this is attachment theory you know this is like attachment theory 101 right If, if we're raised in that safe loving affirming environment, then we we have viscerally feel okay. If we're not, the Catholic faith affects all elements of psychology, all elements. So our parents are supposed to reflect God to us. That's mm-hmm. their job, right? I've got two kids. I've got a, a six-year-old and a three-year-old. I need to, I need to exemplify God the Father to them. They need to know that I absolutely adore them, I die for them, right? They need to know that. And due to the fact that they do, they're comfortable in their own skin. They're like, they're, it's just a felt thing. They just feel okay in themselves, and they feel like they've got a platform from which they can explore life and go out into the world. But when you don't get that, due to the fact that kids can't think well, you know, a, child, a child's interpretation of their parents' behaviour is that not only is this the way it is, but this is the way it should be, right? So whatever happens to them is the norm. This is just the way the world is, you know? But they suffer. So when kids suffer, they they... Their instinct is to look inward and think, there's something wrong with me. So they have this child's instinct to assume, and and that leads to this torturous existence of trying to find out what's wrong with me, (laughs) which is rife in our society these days. This This is everywhere. Everywhere you look, what's wrong? There's something wrong with me. Can I get... Can I make sense of the thing that's wrong with me, you know? Because something's wrong with me. It's horrible, really sad. Yeah, love. How does does Catholicism affect? In every way, really. So in terms of the the development of the person, in terms of how we think about ourselves, in terms of, uh, again, we're in a really privileged position. As a Catholic, I know that I'm good. I know that because God made me. You know, God bless poor people who don't know that and haven't really got anywhere to find it. You know, if you haven't got, if you don't know about God, you've got no way of coming to that conclusion. If you're an atheist materialist and you think we're just tumbling through space, then I'm just a collection of cells that's neutral in in being. There's nothing particularly good about me.
0: I was thinking like with someone with depression, who I guess, besides trying to um, make a distinction between the thoughts and the feelings, how would you infuse that sort of sense of worth without, using any Bible scripture, God mentioning, say, just your intrinsic, who you are, you have inherent value, inherent meaning, your life has meaning imbued with it as you're existing right now in this moment, despite all of the other circumstances, just you have that going for you right now. Mm-hmm. Is that part of the process of of integrating a, a
1: worth for someone? Yeah. Yeah, well you you need to like it, it I I generally go to babies, right? Everyone has an instinct. If 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 anybody sees a, a woman giving birth and sees the baby, the human instinct is that's precious. Mm. That's precious, right? And that's all of us, right? That's so the the human instinct is that infants have a, a lot of worth. People look at humanity around them in, uh, in their adult life and say, Well, some people are evil, you know I'm a bit of a scumbag. <laughs> you know? so that's that's a bit harder when you when you're going to so I, again, I go to universal ideas. If I'm working with atheists, I go to universal ideas. when you talk when you talk about the inherent worth of all children, that's pretty easy for people to grasp, right? it's It's pretty instinctive for people to grasp. When it comes to meaning, you have meaning. I wouldn't want to over philosophize. It really, I think. I think for me, clinically, that would complicate it a bit when you talk about meaning. Or that being said, um, you know, values and things that people have—that's important to utilize. I would say. But trying to to imbue meaning into somebody—it gets into a bit of a philosophical debate if you do that, and that isn't really what therapy is about. I, for for me, again, you know, other people might do it differently, and that's fine. I'm not saying that's right or wrong about it, but I don't. Do that much, I wouldn't say. Okay. But I, I talk about just universals, right? Everybody's got worth, and everybody's got equal worth. Like I've got no more worth intrinsically than a drug addicted prostitute. I've got no more worth. We're both equally worthy. I've got no less worth either. We're just human. So I try and get people to a position of: Does humanity have any worth? Some people, God bless them, say no, they don't. <laughs> you know, but it's very rare. I I it, I've been practicing psychotherapy for ten years. I've met one person in ten years who's who. He was in a bad state, man. He was real deeply depressed. You know, he was a radical atheist. He said humanity has no worth. You know, he was horrible. To say and he was absolutely intransigent. He was going nowhere. God bless him. You felt
0: that was kind of a, uh, when a, you weren't able to to help, or
1: what, what transpired from that. Whether it helped or not, I don't know. I think it shed some light. And he said, okay, I hear I hear, I hear what you're talking about. Um, we did the sort of normal, you know, the secular, the CBT stuff that you would do, right? So you need to do behavior activation with any depressed person. You need to do cognitive restructuring with any depressed person. You need to try to look at things differently and to experiment with different behaviors to see what impact it has on, on the emotional state. But this guy was... He was just in a dark place. He was in a dark place. I wouldn't. I wouldn't like to say it was a spiritual thing. So I don't know. I'm not. Um, I'm not a priest. It's not my job, really. Although the, the, again, the reality of the spiritual life and the fact that we're all born into a spiritual battle, I'm aware of that as a therapist. When I'm working with Catholics, that will come into it. That that wouldn't come into it working with an atheist because they're like, "Go away, you lunatic! I don't want to hear your religious fanaticism," <laughs> mm-hmm. which is fine. But yeah, he was in a dark place, and it, ostensibly it didn't shift. But he was very thankful, nevertheless. He was like, "I'm really thankful to time you gave me." I'm thankful for. We discussed. And he was he was thankful, but I, I I felt uneasy really by the end of that.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, in the Bible, it talks about, um, you know, you've been given a a, a measurement of faith. Everyone has been given talents equal to the measure of their faith. And I always understood that as you see things through this lens or perspective of, of having a soul, we see that. But I think for all those people that don't see a soul as, as a part of their entity and just say something like, I have a, I have a self or I have a my mind exists and but they don't want to say soul because it has moral, uh, religious connotation, religious connotation. And I just think about some people have a less measure of language for faith. And I think that's where some of those even very brilliant atheists have that. Well, they just God didn't give them enough of the juice. Right. And maybe they can help other people in certain ways. And I think some people have a lot of that. So they could say, you know, take it on faith. Take it on faith. Whereas someone who like more like me, that's like, no, tell me why you know i want to have explained and like i mentioned in the beginning you know we go into saint thomas aristotle you know we go into logic and reason and try to find nuggets of truth from different aspects different cultures even you know or eastern philosophies that say that you know they have certain truths i think even you know there are certain truths that are found in other religions that, that are, that are still consistent with an understanding of either, you know, not being material or the immaterial above the material, or even a concept of an absolute moral absolute. But I think that those people that don't have those, they don't have the language they don't have the capacity for faith. And I, I don't think it's really their fault, but I can still love them from that level of, from, from my perspective, from my understanding. And I think that that's tension between the material and the immaterial. I kind of give them a little more leeway because it's like, I, I read that line of scripture and it's like, well, they just don't have it. They don't see it. They don't want to feel. Or you said they know the things that the, some of the things that they're rejecting are the things they know to be true. And I, and I wonder if some of those
1: people just don't know that that's true. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I work in, um, you know, private companies and and I worked for the NHS for years. So I, I, I'm beginning to practice Catholic psychotherapy now because I think that the time has come that I, I want to do it. But my whole history has been working in a non-religious context, right? But I'll use the ideas. I'll so for example, I'll bring to the table. So the the question of if if I know something to be true, if I know something to be true, but I feel like something else is true. Which of those two things should govern my action? That's just, a, that's just a general question, right? And we'll reach the point of, well, what I know to be true should govern my action. And everybody gets it. Everybody's like, well, of course that's it. But a lot of people say, I've never heard that before. I've never heard that before. Because people talk about intuition and feeling. And again, this is the elevation in our society of emotion too high. So people, people... I'm a covert Catholic. If <laughs> you see what I mean, so I'll bring in reality <sighs> where I can. So I'll talk about the life of the passions. The scheme I give the scheme of the passions from a Thomistic perspective, right? So, love, hate, desire, avulsion, happiness, sadness, fear, courage or, or, or daring, hope, despair, anger. I give I give that, and I talk about what they're for from a Thomistic perspective. What is what? What's the function of the passions? How do they relate to one another? And everybody, everybody, not everybody, but the vast majority of people say, I've never heard anybody say it like that before. It makes perfect sense. It makes sense. It makes sense, yeah. I don't mention God, because I can't. I'm not allowed to. Unless people say I'm religious, they tell me they're religious. And, and sometimes people can intuit that I am from the way that I speak. Only religious people really will intuit it. But um, I present these ideas, and it, it makes sense. Yeah, that that's my experience. They're like, um, and but they say that I've never heard it said that way before. No, no I've never heard that before. Is it is that anywhere? Uh, is that correlation in any
0: book? Can I do just Google search? Right, I just want to find the easy stuff. How do I
1: find something, or what would you suggest? It's it's to to be honest, in in terms of literature on it, it's all fairly. Um, philosophical and dense. So one one of the reasons that I'm making this course on Catholic CBT for depression is because all of the reading that I've done is really difficult, right? It's all PhD theses and things, and you, you, you sort of need to have a, a fairly sound grasp of mystic philosophy or Aristotelian philosophy just to make sense of of a lot of that and this is what the books say at the start you need some philosophical understanding just to work through this book so the reason that I'm putting it into I'm I'm teasing out I'm trying to at least this is my hope I'm teasing out the bits that are relevant for our purposes for therapy and putting it into a bite-sized format so that people can utilize it is because that I don't think that has been done really I don't I don't think I, I I haven't seen anyone do that, so yeah, I want to do that.
0: <laughs> Great, that sounds. And and why just de- why uh, depression? Because you also mentioned OCD, and, and I'm sure anxiety is is equally you know pervasive.
1: Yeah, I will. I'll do that later. Yeah, okay. It's going to take me a few months just to get together the depression one. To be honest with you, so okay. but I, I I think the next one will probably be generalized anxiety disorder or social anxiety, because it's so common, you know. Yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. Why is depression and anxiety becoming so so common now? Because people are no longer believe in God. Honestly, honestly, that's what I think. I swear to God. Like people have lost contact with God. Atheism is a psychologically unhealthy philosophy by definition, because you you're conforming your intellect to a lie. You know, so you know. What, you know, I've talked about the the passions and things. What one thing that's always entailed in any mental health problem is what you would call an intellectual vice. Somebody's thinking about something wrong. They have to be. This is what the cognitive psychologists said, right? Talk about irra- rational and irrational thinking. Um. So you can't get it much more wrong than God doesn't exist. That's about as wrong as it gets, and it leads to nothing but. Well, you know, in the final analysis, again, if you follow it through to its logical conclusion, all you've got is despair. There's nothing, but what is there? So why are people depressed? They've got no meaning. Why are people depressed? Because they don't know that union with God is beatitude, is happiness, you know? Happiness is a constituent part of mental health. What is happiness? Union with God. Um, If you don't know God, then God bless you, you know, good luck, you know? I, I don't
0: I've heard the antithesis as uh, nihilistic goo. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah it's it's just, horrible. It's yeah. it's frightening, man. It's frightening. It's everywhere. Yeah. Okay. Where can people go to find you and your work? I have a website which is christian-psychotherapy.co.uk. They can find me on Facebook. So Greg Nolan on Facebook, um, and I've got a page called Catholic CBT on Facebook as well well thank you for
0: everything that you've shared with us and i hope uh people will have a better understanding about themselves and also the passions in the mind and the difference between thoughts and feelings these are all new concepts to me and and i'm excited and i'm very thankful for you becoming a guest on the meaningfulistic podcast
1: it's been a pleasure thanks for having me thanks for having me thank you cheers
0: If you're interested in learning more, Greg has his course on Overcoming Depression with Catholic CBT available now online through his website, that is christian-psychotherapy.co.uk and it is available to anyone who is struggling with depression and is open to the Christian concept of the human soul. I learned so much from this exchange with Greg and I am truly grateful for him making the time to coordinate being across the pond and talk to me, the greatest thing that I learned is how much I didn't know. I did more research on a Thomistic understanding of the spirit, soul, and the body that I never took the time to learn. My next episode will be titled The Soul of an Atheist and I can't wait to share that with you. If you can find me and more messages of the meaningfulistic on instagram at meaningfulistic you can also join the meaningfulistic facebook group and if you're interested in reaching out and sending a message or asking questions or would like to be on the show you can email me at meaningfulistic at gmail thank you and god bless